You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I want to open this week's show by apologizing to everyone who listened to last week's show, not on Tuesday morning, but on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday morning. Because you had to listen to me do the opening of last week's show, sounding pretty fairly confident that Hillary Rodham Clinton was going to win the election. I believed that she was going to win the election, right along with Nate Silver and the other Nate and all the pollsters and all the newspapers and all the hopeful people in the world. And that is not how... Tuesday night played out much to our shock and our horror. Like a lot of you, I spent a lot of time despairing this week and my fair share of time weeping this week. And I got a text from a friend right when I was felt like I was pulling it together, felt like I might be moving out of the spontaneous weeping phase of grieving this election and this calamity that has really been visited upon our democracy, our republic, and the world. When I got a text... I got a text. I got a text from a friend who told me that her son, who is Mexican, Mexican descent, Mexican heritage, as is her wife, said to his moms that he wished he wasn't Mexican because the president would like him then. And I was gutted by that because I know this kid. I know this little kid. And he's a wonderful little kid growing up in a really cool city, Alex, in Portland, Oregon. He's a terrific kid. And for this kid to have to face the next four years with this sense of not just estrangement, but endangerment, because the most powerful man in the world, this orange shit mountain that somehow won this election, has it in for him that this six-year-old kid is picking up enough of the news and enough of the chatter and enough of the zeitgeist to realize that that is a horrible thing that has been done to that child. And I ache for that child. There are children all over the country who are hurting in that same way. There are adults all over the country who are fearful in that same way. I am one of them. There are adults facing more immediate threats from the incoming Trump administration than I am facing or my family is facing. But I recognize that there are people of color out there, Mexican immigrants, black people, brown people, Muslims, who are in much more immediate danger. There have been racist and Islamophobic attacks on people of color and Muslims all over the country in the wake of Donald Trump's election. It has unleashed, it has untethered something that we thought was tied up and in the corner, not safely so. Racism, sexism, xenophobia were present and damaging, but it felt for a time, perhaps, to some small extent contained Not safely contained. Racism, sexism, xenophobia has victims. People are harmed by it daily in this country. But now, now it feels it is off the chain and unleashed in a way that feels like we're in some nightmare replay of some awful D.W. Griffith movie from 80 fucking years ago. And it is legitimately terrifying. So terrifying. People are weeping in the streets. So terrifying that six-year-old boys growing up in same-sex couple of households in Portland, Oregon, that they are fearful. And I am fearful. And I'm sure a lot of you are fearful. 
And in a way, the fear is more acute with Donald J. Trump. A lot of us felt the same shock and disappointment and anger and grief when George W. Bush got reelected or elected, depending on your point of view, in 2004. But as awful as George W. Bush was and is, he oscillated within a certain predictable band of Republican awfulness. We knew what we could expect, as awful as it might be from George W. Bush. We do not know what we can expect or how awful things might get under Donald J. Trump. Perhaps it is some small comfort that as he assembles his cabinet of horrors, that he is stocking it with familiar Republican shit-eating, shit-grinning faces. That maybe there will be some predictability there. Maybe Trump will oscillate within that same band of Republican awfulness that we are familiar with from the administrations of George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, and Ronald fucking Reagan. Or maybe he's going to visit a new brand of awfulness upon this country. We do not yet know. What we do know is that we got through Reagan. Don't say we survived Reagan, because you know what? A lot of people I know didn't survive Reagan. We got through H.W. Bush. We got through George W. Bush. Didn't all survive, but we got through it. And we got through it not by giving up. We got through it not by moving away. We got through it not by ceding an inch. We got through it by organizing and fighting back. And as awful as we all felt in 2004 when George W. Bush got elected or reelected, depending on your point of view, you know what happened four fucking years later? We elected Barack Obama. We can turn things around if we don't give up. We can turn things around if we organize and if we fight back. And one of the most important ways that we have to fight back right now are in the cities. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. In any other democracy in the world, as Lawrence O'Donnell pointed out on MSNBC the other night, in any other country in the world, the popular vote, you know what that's called? The vote. In any other democracy, she would be president. Winning the popular vote means winning the election because the popular vote is the vote. Winning the popular vote, winning the vote means winning the election. Not here because of the anti-democratic electoral college. But we are the majority. People who voted against Trump are the majority. Hillary Clinton got more votes by millions than Trump did. Millions plural than Trump did. So when you look around this country where you live today, please don't feel estranged from it. Please don't feel like you are the outlier. Please don't feel like you are the alien. You are the majority. We are the mainstream. And when Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, you know how she won it? She won it with the cities. Cities are liberal and progressive and diverse and forward thinking. My son, who I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago and how proud I was of him for voting in his first presidential election at 18 and getting to vote in his first presidential election for a woman. He texted me on the night of the election in shock. He texted me to say, but she had every major city. And I wrote him back and said, cities are democratic and diverse. It's harder to convince people to hate and fear people. They actually know and interact with every day. That's what we have in cities. And that's what we're going to defend big cities, big city mayors, Big city residents, big city voters, we are the front lines of the resistance to Donald J. Trump. And we have to pledge right now, all of us, that we are going to stay engaged and stay in the fight. We are not going to walk off the field. We are not going to cede an inch. That we are going to fight for every right guaranteed us. We are going to fight for every individual. We are going to fight for the rights of our immigrant friends, neighbors, and coworkers. 
And we're going to fight for the rights of our Muslim friends, neighbors, and coworkers, and our trans friends, neighbors, and coworkers, and our lesbian and gay friends, neighbors, and coworkers. We're going to fight for the rights and the families of six-year-olds growing up in Portland, Oregon, in brown skin, who feel endangered and threatened now by this monster who is moving in to the Oval Office. And we can do that starting in the cities. You want something to do? You want something to get off your ass and do? Get off your ass and make a donation to the American Civil Liberties Union right now. Join the American Civil Liberties Union right now. The Republicans have the Senate, the House, the White House, and soon they may have the Supreme Court. We need the American Civil Liberties Union to hire as many lawyers as it's going to take to defend the Constitution and our rights and the rights of our friends and neighbors who are going to be targeted by the Trump administration. And also, you know what you can do right now in the cities? You can get in the face of your mayor, get in the face of your elected representatives on the local level, your city council members, your county council members, and you demand that they pledge not to allow local police Departments, local law enforcement to participate in any roundups, any persecutions of our immigrant friends, neighbors, documented or undocumented, of our Muslim friends and neighbors, refugee, native born or immigrant or anyone else that we will resist. And it's the cities, the cities that voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton that will resist, that will lead the resistance, that will turn the tide. As I've said before in the show, there is no such thing as a blue state. There are only red states, but some red states have big blue cities in them that flip those states into the Democratic column. Washington state is a red state geographically, but look at Seattle and King County, big and blue enough to flip Washington into the Democratic column. Same thing with Illinois. Same thing with California. Same thing with Oregon. It is the cities that vote for liberal, progressive, diverse values. And it's the cities that will save America. It was the cities and voters in the cities that elected Barack Obama in 2008. It was the cities in 2016 that awarded Hillary Clinton the majority of the popular vote. And it is the cities that in 2020 will turf Donald J. Trump and his clown show of horrors out of the White House and it is the cities, if we turn up and if we vote in 2018, that will take back the Senate. House might not be in reach, but we can take back the Senate if we organize, if we vote, if we fight. Everything that's upsetting you today, and I am upset today, everything that's upsetting you today will only get worse. You will only be more upset in 2018 and 2020 if you walk off the field. If you despair, do not despair. Wallow, I have been wallowing this week. It has been a week of whatever I want to eat. It has been a week of whatever I want to drink. It has been a week of whatever I want to watch. And it hasn't been the news that I've been watching. We have been having a wallow at our house. You have a good wallow and a good cry at your house. You hug your kids. You let your friends and neighbors know that you have their backs, particularly your friends and neighbors who are people of color. If you are not a person of color yourself. And then you get up off your ass and you fight. That's what I intend to do with the tools that I have at my disposal, which includes this podcast. Pledge to do the same. 
Look at the money you donated last year and see if you can't squeeze out a little bit more. Now is the time to keep voting. You know, we voted with our ballots on Tuesday of last week. Now we get to vote with our checkbooks. We can continue to express. We can continue to demonstrate our liberal and progressive values and our commitment to a civil and just and democratic and constitutional society with our checkbooks, with our money. I am writing large checks this week to the American Civil Liberties Union, to Planned Parenthood, to the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and to the Lambda Legal. You don't have to donate to the same groups I am, but please find the groups that are doing the work that needs to be done over the next two to four years and write that check. And it doesn't have to be a large check to be worth it. The numbers of donors when it comes to organizations, particularly like Planned Parenthood, matter as much as the amount of the donations that those numbers made. Five, 10, 20 bucks matters. Join, donate, fight. Wallow first. I will admit I have been wallowing. I'm not guilting you. If you have been having a good wallow, I've been having a good wallow myself. We are a news junkie household. We have not opened the New York Times, the blue flag on the porch. We have not torn that open since Wednesday morning. We have not had news radio on since Wednesday morning. We have not watched a cable news broadcast since Wednesday morning. We are taking some time. We are engaging in acts of self-care. You should do the same. But just like I've advised people who are grieving the end of a relationship, at a certain point, it requires an act of will to leave the house, to stop wallowing, to get up and get out there and get on with it. If you're suffering a horrible breakup, get on with your romantic life. Get on with your social life. Suffering a political calamity like this, get on with it means get on with your political engagement. Get on with your political life. You can't disengage. Get up off the floor and fight. And now because sex life goes on too, not just political life, now your calls. Hey, Dan. I am a cisgendered female, 28 years old, living in a major northeast city. I'm calling, like most people, after the election results in a state of shock and feeling very emotional. Uh, but my question is concerning the holidays. Uh, my father, who is a fundamentalist who openly supports Trump, uh, is hosting Christmas with my sister, uh, who is a libertarian and chose not to vote this year. Um, my problem is, you know, despite years of trying to repair relationships, you know, a month ago to this day, I was the best woman and or the uh, maid of honor in my best friend's wedding, a gay wedding. I am myself bisexual. I don't know how I can go in good conscience and spend Christmas with them. I could tell them not to talk about politics, but to be honest, I don't know if I can be around them. And I would like to enjoy my holiday. I'd also like to take the higher ground and, uh, you know, want to say that I'm, I'm, I can rise above this and I can uh, take a moral high ground and I can still be civil. But, you know, in this sort of state of shock, I don't know that I could be. So if you have any suggestions for those of us out there who are looking to the holidays that are not that far away and sort of how to cope or what to do with those who are in our life are uh, uh, clearly in support of the right and Trump. You can be civil next fucking Christmas. 
one of the things I think all of us who are still reeling and will continue to reel up until January 20th when we have to watch, if we choose to watch, this monster shit garbage mountain get sworn into office when we have to watch, if we choose to watch, Barack fucking Obama watch this racist who questioned his place of birth, who maligned and undermined and delegitimized him actively for four years, shake his fucking hand and watch him put that disgusting hand on a Bible. And the fact that when Trump puts his hand on a Bible, his hand doesn't burst into flames and incinerate instantaneously, that all by itself is proof that there is not a God, much less a just or vengeful God. Yeah, in the wake of this, as we brace ourselves for this calamity to unfold, we must engage in acts of self-care, as they say. And your act of self-care this Christmas season is not going home, not making nice with the family. Next year, you know what's going to be going on by next Christmas? We will be reaping what your family and other Trump voters who are a minority in this country, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. In any other democracy anywhere else on earth, Hillary Clinton would be sworn in on January 20th. Only here with our anti-democratic, moron-empowering electoral college does the loser of the popular vote, in some instances 2,000, and now this case, twice in my adult life, does the person who loses the popular vote win the election. By next Christmas... We will be reaping what these assholes have sowed. We will be seeing the disastrous outcomes. We will have a year of scandal, of Florida sinking under the waves and hopefully taking Marco Rubio with it. And God knows what else tumbling out of the Trump closet. You know, one of the reasons the media went so soft on Trump in the run-up, in the primaries, even when he was campaigning against Clinton, one of the reasons the media didn't get religion about really covering him and really digging into him until so late is because they never imagined he would actually be fucking president. And now it's a race. It's a race between what Donald Trump promised that he would do to the media, go after it, attack it, use the powers of his office to prosecute the media. And it's a race between him enacting those policies somehow and the media uncovering enough dirt, the dirt that we all know is out there about Trump to I don't know what. I don't know what will happen if we uncover that dirt. I don't know. We're, we can't rely on the Republican House to impeach Donald fucking Trump. But maybe with the media's help getting off its back, finally, the Trump administration can be ground to a halt and boxed in and less able to do the damage or more damage that it's going to be capable to, of doing just with the levers that it controls that are purely the president's to flip. So by next Christmas... Your family just can't sit there smiling at you smugly, basking in the glow of this victory and pretending that it's all going to be making America great again from here on out. By next Christmas, you will have scandal and disaster to point to, to lay at their feet if they dare to bring this election up. So skip Christmas. No, don't skip Christmas. Have a lovely Christmas. Some place else. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a queer woman, West Coast, late 30s, went to bed last night, election day, still hoping for a miracle, woke up this morning, 
Um, look to my family. What do we tell our kids? One of our kids keeps asking if we can move. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what to tell them. <laughs> We're a queer poly family. We barely have legal rights as it is here. Now with Trump and Pence, I don't know how to even think about it. And I don't know how to talk to the boys about it. I would love to hear what, what you have to say to us and what we should do, how we should organize. And how do we talk to our kids? In 2004, when George W. Bush got reelected and the day after that election felt like this, but about 28, maybe 35 percent of this, that was the election, not just where George W. Bush got reelected. Always sticks in my throat, though, to have to say he got reelected because it was really the first time George Bush won an election for president as opposed to stealing an election for president. But for the sake of brevity, let's just say 2004 when George W. Bush was reelected. It was devastating. We were all devastated. He was had been uh, and continued to be so manifestly terrible a president and terrible to queers in particular that we didn't think that he could possibly get reelected. We didn't think the American people could possibly make this mistake. Unlike that time, again, I said this to the previous caller, it was a minority of Americans who've done this this time. That time, this awful sitting president won a majority. This time, our awful sitting president-to-be lost the popular vote, won the electoral college by a trick of our system, by a kink in our system. No, I'm not going to – no, no. I'm not going to associate the word kink with this piece of shit. Kink is a good and positive thing in a lot of people's lives. By a quirk of our system, by a demerit, a fault, a mistake, an error uh, in our system, an error of the founding fathers. That's how he – this piece of shit won this election. So first thing you have to emphasize to your kids is they're not alienated from the majority of Americans. The majority of Americans voted for Hillary Clinton. More than 50% of Americans voted against Donald Trump if you count votes that were squandered on third-party candidates as well. But even without those votes, even without third-party candidate votes, Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump. More Americans wanted Hillary Clinton to be president than wanted Donald Trump to be president. So do not hate your fellow Americans, round the fuck up. Most of your fellow Americans are on your side, on your family's side. I say all this, jumping back to 2004 and how we felt then when George W. Bush got reelected. It wasn't just the election of George W. Bush. It was the passage in 11 states of anti-same-sex marriage amendments that were pushed onto the ballot expressly to drive evangelical Christian quote-unquote Christian, haters to the polls and help reelect George W. Bush in these 11 states. And in every state that marriage was on the ballot, in every state hate was on the ballot, it passed. My, what I did when I got home that next morning, I was up all night writing and reporting and getting a paper out. When I got home the next morning, you know what I said to my kid? Nothing. I sat down on the couch, my kid crawled onto my lap, and I burst into tears. And then our kid listened to us have a long conversation, Terry and I, about whether we should leave, whether we should move the fuck away, whether it was time to head to Canada because it didn't feel like we would ever be citizens in this country, fully enfranchised citizens. And then four years later, we elected Barack fucking Obama. 
president. And the people weeping were the evangelical Christian haters in their basements, in their mega churches. And programming note, always when I say evangelical Christian anti-gay haters, Christian is in quotes there because I don't think they are Christians, just like they don't think I am human. So as evidenced by what happened between 2004 and 2008, this is what you say to your kids, we can turn this around. As bitter as this defeat is, doubly so because of the popular vote in the electoral fucking college, as bitter as it is, we stay, we fight, we organize. We don't cede an inch of ground to them. This land is our land. The cities are ours. You live in a big city. Hillary Clinton won the big cities. I move through Seattle every day, the big city where I live, confident that my values are going to be reflected by the government, not the federal government for a while, but my local and state government. Seattle, Washington. Washington State, we upped the minimum wage. Washington State, we passed a gun control measure. Washington State, we reelected our Democratic governor. Washington State, we reelected one of our two sitting female Democratic U.S. senators. Seattle, we passed a massive transit measure. Seattle sent a person of color, an immigrant, to Congress, Pramila Jayapal. Seattle sent an Iranian-American, a disabled Iranian-American, to our state government. So this is what we do. This is how we organize. We don't just organize at the federal level to fight Trump. We do that too. But we organize locally and we fight locally. And we hold our local elected officials accountable. And that begins with demanding from them right now commitments not to participate in anything that the Trump administration tries to shove down our throats, down their throats, that local police departments answer to local politicians who answer to local residents and our police departments in the cities that Clinton won, the majority of cities, the big cities, we have to get a commitment from our elected officials and from those police departments that they will not round up our neighbors who are Muslim. They will not round up our neighbors who are undocumented immigrants. They will not round up dreamers. They will not participate in Donald Trump's pogroms if indeed they come. This is how we organize. We organize at the local level, at city levels. We organize the resistance. And queers are going to be a big part of that resistance. And your family can be a big part of that resistance. And what we say to our kids is at least as important as what our kids see us doing. They see us volunteering. They see us speaking out. They see us reaching out to our neighbors and friends who may feel more imperiled right now than we do because of the color of their skin. I'm not making any assumptions here about your race. I'm talking about me and my race. I feel very threatened by what just went down. Personally threatened. My family feels under siege. My family feels threatened. My family is three white dudes. Three adult white dudes, now that my kid is 18. And while we are indeed threatened, we are not as immediately threatened as our friends and neighbors of color as our friends and neighbors and coworkers and colleagues of minority faiths. And it's important that our kids see us recognize that and see us pushing against it and working to address it if we are white. It is doubly, triply, quadruply important. Kids are really prone to tribalism. Kids are really prone to sorting themselves into groups for sometimes random reasons, including gender, including race, including faith. And they need to see that the adults in their lives don't organize and sort in that same way to inspire them not to thoughtlessly do that same thing at school. So what do you need to do for your kids? You need to hold them. You need to cry with them. 
need to wallow a bit in the misery of this moment, and it is a miserable moment. You need to allow them even to see you be fearful because they themselves are doubtless feeling fearful right now. And then they need to see what you do next. They need to see you get up off the couch. They need to see you organize and fight back. They need to see you donate your time and your money and your passion to rolling this back. And you know what else we need to do? You know what else our kids need to know we're doing and see us doing? They need to see us enjoying ourselves. They need to see us finding joy, finding pleasure. They need to see us consuming and enjoying and talking about other things. Art, intimacy, human connection. They need to see us hosting dinner parties where the conversations aren't dominated only by this. They need to see us still living our non-Trump lives and getting on with it. Not just getting on with the fight and we're all going to get in the fight, but also getting on with the joy of living. And that has not ended with this election. And we can't let our kids think that joy and pleasure and life stops now. And they'll think that if we stop finding pleasure, finding joy in life, finding intimacy, finding connection, and reaching out to each other. So do both. Organize, fight, but also live. And live not just for the fight, but be in the fight. And hopefully four years from now, they see what can happen when people organize and fight back. Because when we organize and fight back, we can fucking win. We can take it back. We can turn it around. That can't happen if we flee. That can't happen if we crumple. What are we showing our kids if we just fold up? What are we showing our kids if we never get back up off the couch, if we never stop fucking crying? We're telling them to give up. We're telling them that they and their futures don't matter enough to us to work for them, to fight for them. And I don't know about you, but my kid's future, and I'm not talking about you, caller, you, everybody out there listening, I don't know about you, but my kid's future matters enough to me to fight for it, as does my marriage, as does my family, as does the safety and wholeness of all of my fellow Americans, including and God, it hurts to force these words out of my mouth. People who voted for Donald Trump, who are also going to suffer when he tanks the economy, they're particularly going to suffer when he tanks the economy, who are also going to suffer as he trashes our environment. They will come to see in time, not all of them, but enough of them to earn us a better outcome of our next national election that they made a mistake. So hold your kids, cry with your kids, and then get up off your ass and set an example for your kids by fighting for them, for yourself, and for your country. Okay, we have a lot of calls uh, on the Trump subject, but I think we're going to leave the Trump subject here for my sanity and for your sanity. We're going to have a lot of time to talk about Donald Trump, but I want to make sure that the show is also about love and pleasure and sex and relationships and how to have them and how to make them better, and not only about the fallout from this terrible election. So for the rest of today's show, we're going to leave Trump aside and focus on other stuff, better stuff. Hey, Dan, uh, single 64 year old male out West did some dumb stuff a few years ago, got caught soliciting a prostitute, was married at the time, had a very tormentuous relationship with, uh, with my wife of many, many years. We're no longer married, actually started dating, I'm decent looking, in good shape, never have a problem with dating, but I found a woman that I'm really, we're falling in love rapidly. Do I disclose this to her? They slammed me in the local papers. Uh, it's not going to be hard for her to find out about my past. 
the only thing I've ever really done. Anyway, is that something I need to disclose to her before I get any farther with this? I hate to fall too deeply in love and then lose everything or hurt her feelings along the way. If you two get serious, if you make a commitment to this woman, if you want to spend the rest of your life with this woman, the question then becomes not if she's ever going to find out about this, but when she's going to find out about it and from whom. If she marries you, if you end up living together in whatever small town you live in where you were splashed all over the local small press, somebody's going to tell her about it. She's going to hear about it. Maybe your ex-wife, if she's still angry, is going to reach out and tell your new wife about this. So you got to get in front of it in a situation like that. It's okay to continue to date her, to let her get to know you better so that when you make this disclosure, she can weigh the man she knows you to be from the time that you've spent together against whatever prejudices or biases she holds about sex work. And then you can lay it out to her in a way that's sympathetic to your side of the story. You were in a long-term relationship. You were in a marriage. It wasn't very satisfying. You were sexually frustrated. You were lonely. And you did something foolish and stupid that so many millions of other heterosexual men in your circumstance have done. And you regret it, but you wanted to be honest with her about it and tell her, as you were beginning to get really serious about each other, before she heard about it from someone else. Roll it out that way, and you're going to come across like a stand-up guy who's being straight with her and having a difficult conversation rather than avoiding a difficult conversation, even if you are, as all men are, an imperfect guy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old single straight woman living in a large city on the East Coast. And I was sexually assaulted last year um, in January. I um, believe I was drugged um, while I was out at a bar with some friends and acquaintances. And the guy took me home um, and had sex with me. And I woke up the next day um, with the worst hangover I've ever had in my life, way out of proportion to what it would have been had on the four beers that I had. And I don't know how to date now. Um, I was depressed for a while and I didn't want to date. Now I'm not as depressed and I would like to date, but I don't know how to do it while keeping myself safe and not totally freaking guys out. I don't really have a lifestyle that's friendly towards going out a lot. I have a day job and I have a hobby that's turned into a second career, so I don't have a lot of time. Ideally, I would be able to online date. But a lot of the guys on the apps are so intent on meeting right away and having sex right away that it just makes me feel very uncomfortable and I'm, I'm not willing to do that. And then when you tell them that you don't want to meet right away and have sex right away, it's just automatic silence. I'm and it's also an introvert, so going to events and things and trying to strike up conversations with strangers is really not something I'm terribly good at. And I don't really think it's, appropriate for me to just put it right out there online and I'm a sexual assault survivor and please don't be creepy and rapey with me. I mean, I would like to eventually be in a relationship and, and have sex and feel normal again. I was in therapy before I was sexually assaulted. And so this is just an additional thing that we've been dealing with. I mean, I haven't been out at a bar drinking again in almost two years now. And I just don't foresee myself ever being comfortable doing that again. Um, I think what makes this a little bit worse is that I was also sexually assaulted in college. So this is the second time it's happened to me. And it's just made me feel way more vulnerable this time, especially 
since I was 33 years old at the time. And I feel like, you know, that's too old and I should have known better and I should have been watching my drinks more closely. Um, and I should have, you know, better friends who wouldn't have let some strange guy um, take me home from the bar. Um, if you have any advice, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Let's start with the should haves. It's not your fault what happened to you, what was done to you, not your fault. You are throwing a lot of should haves at yourself that are inappropriate and misplaced. Uh, so don't sit there telling yourself this is your fault in any way. Don't sit there telling yourself you should have. Kn- and if your therapist isn't telling you to knock this off, then get a different therapist, get a better therapist. Don't sit there telling yourself you should have known better. You should have been keeping a, a closer eye on your drink. You should have had better friends. Knock it off with that. You should live in a world where men don't do this to women. You should live in a world where people don't drug other people's drinks. You should live in a world. We should all live in a world where we can go out to bars without having to play defense all night to protect ourselves or to protect our friends from predators. So enough with the should have. A terrible thing happened to you. A terrible thing was done to you. It didn't happen to you. It wasn't a lightning strike. Someone with intent and malice did this to you. And the blame and the responsibility and the should haves are all on him. He shouldn't have done this. He shouldn't have drugged your drink. He shouldn't have raped you. All the should haves are his, not yours. All that said, you need to separate out the guy's intent on meeting right away that you're meeting online from the guys who want to have sex right away. Those are really two different groups of guys. And if you don't want to go to bars for completely legitimate and understandable reasons, and you're not comfortable in bars anymore for completely legitimate and understandable reasons, online dating really is a good way for you to go. But the advice that people get about online dating, men and women both, is not to make too large an investment in someone prior to actually physically meeting them. Now, physically meeting them doesn't mean meeting up for sex five minutes after you make contact on Tinder or wherever the fuck else. But, you know, people have been burned. People have been catfished. Also, people have just made large emotional investments in people that they were interacting with via a dating app. And then the first time they get together, there's no chemistry. They don't click. And all of that large emotional investment feels like a waste. In the best cases in a situation like that, neither person feels a spark and both walk away feeling, ah, I wasted a lot of time. The worst cases, people meet up and one person is still feeling it and the other person isn't. And then the person who isn't feeling it doesn't want to see that person again. And then the person who made that large emotional investment who would like to see them really feels not just cheated, but humiliated and rejected in a way that can be very scalding. So really, everyone's come to this conclusion that best practices around online dating is for a meetup soon after establishing some sort of rapport. An interest is established. Meetup doesn't have to be in a bar. Doesn't have to be an open ended first meeting. It doesn't have to be about sex. You can say in your profile, you can say to any man who approaches you online, I don't want to have sex with anyone right away. That's not me. If you'd like to meet up in the middle of the day for coffee, I'm not really into bars or drinking. You don't have to tell them why right away. I would be happy to do that so that, you know, if we don't click, we're not going to waste a lot of time emailing and texting with each other and making a large emotional investment uh, without establishing a a firm basis for making that kind of large emotional investment. Let's meet up. Let's meet up at the art museum. Let's go walk around the gallery together for five minutes. Let's go have 
coffee together for five minutes and schedule it for 4 p.m. or schedule it for noon on your lunch break. Schedule it at a time when you have a definitive hard out, as they say in Hollywood around meetings. You have a hard out, not an open-ended meeting that first time. Guys who want to have sex right away, they're not going to want to have that initial meeting that's got a, where you have a hard out. They're not going to want to make that investment of time in you. But you'll be surprised by the numbers of guys who want to have that meeting right away but don't necessarily want to have sex right away. You are lumping all of these guys together, guys who want to meet right away with guys who want to have sex right away. They're really two different groups. There is some overlap. There's guys who want to meet right away because they want to have sex right away. But they are guys who want to meet right away because maybe they've been burned in the past where they had months of interaction with someone online, months of email exchange, months of phone calls, and then they meet up and there's just no spark. The chemical thing isn't there. So make that distinction. As an introvert, and I'm an introvert myself, as introverts, we need the internet. We need online dating. It is a real tool for introverts. And you shouldn't deny yourself that, particularly with your history of sexual trauma, and your ability to screen people online, you shouldn't deny yourself that tool now that you are ready to start dating again. Just make that distinction. Guys who want to meet right away, some of them want to have sex right away, but not every guy who wants to meet right away wants to have sex right away. You meet up with the guys who want to meet right away without having sex right away. Hi, Dan. I'm a 36-year-old gay male living in San Diego. I have a partner of five years, and I came out to my family three years ago. Well, I should say I came out to my parents three years ago. And last Christmas, I came out to the rest of my family. I know, I know, Christmas isn't the best time to come out to the family. However, I'm in the Navy, so I really only get a chance to go see my family during holidays or major family events. My family is very close, and they get together all of the time. Christmas, birthdays, Sundays after church, and heck, just on Wednesdays. When I came out to my family last Christmas, almost all of them were okay with it. They gave me the standard Christian line, we love you, but we don't agree with your lifestyle. Well, all of them but my mom's sister and her husband and her adult child. They basically said, if I brought my partner to any family event, they would not come. I am very lucky to have an amazing partner that said he was willing to stay in the hotel last Christmas while I spent time with my family. Again, he is amazing. He said he would be willing to do that again this year as well. However, I don't feel like that is the right thing to do. At the same time, I don't feel like it would be right to ask my family to choose between me and my boyfriend or my aunt and her family. But moreover, I want to be able to spend Christmas with my partner. Last Christmas Eve, my mom had a family dinner for my partner and me, and my stepbrother came as well. My sister lives on the other side of the country, otherwise she would be there as well. However, it's not the same as the big family gathering, and I want my partner to get to know the rest of my family. I think it would not only behoove him, but the rest of my family they would be able to see a normal gay couple instead of the preconceived ideas of what a gay couple is. I think I know what you're going to tell me, but I guess I just need to hear it from you. The first thing I'm going to tell you to do, I'm sure you've already done it, but I think you need to do it again, is go apologize to your boyfriend, your partner of five years. 
for parking him in a hotel on Christmas Day so you could go spend Christmas with your family as if he is not your family, as if he is not really your next of kin at this point. If he is your partner, you call him your boyfriend and your partner. Clearly, I assume that to mean you're not yet married, but you're calling him your partner. Old school gay style, your partner, not your husband, your partner. And that carries some weight. He is the most important person in your life to you. He is the person that you have chosen to spend theoretically and hopefully the rest of your life with, which makes him not just a member of your family, but the most important member of your family, your immediate family, your next of kin, him. And you abandon him on Christmas so that your aunt didn't shit her pants because your boyfriend was coming? Fuck your aunt. Here's what you do. You tell mom you know the family's close. You've been out to mom and dad by the time Christmas rolls around three or four years now, out to the family officially for a year now, and you will come home for Christmas with your partner if your partner is invited, if they want you there, he's invited too. If he's not invited too, then you can't come. You will not be coming. Then it really puts the onus on your mother. If somebody needs a special half the family's a bigot dinner that's separate from the main celebration, mom can throw that for her sister and her bigoted family. Mom, your mom is in a position now where she has to choose. She has to make her guest list. If you're invited, he's invited. Your mother should say to her sister, we would love you to be there. But if you can't come because my son and his partner are coming, you will be missed. If your mother won't say that, if your mother won't love your partner, even if she feels she must tell him she doesn't agree with his lifestyle choice. If she can't love him for loving you, don't inflict these people on your partner. Book a cruise for Christmas. Apologize again for last Christmas and wait it out. I predict your family will come around. Everyone probably who's a regular listener to this podcast can chant the advice along with me now. Your only leverage over your parents and your family of origin as an adult is your presence. If they can't love and respect you and respect, if not love, at least respect the people that you love, don't make yourself present. Make yourself absent. And make sure they understand why you're not coming home for Christmas. And that it's their choice. That if they want you there, there is a bar they have to clear. And it's not a very high bar. Just respectful treatment and consideration for you and the man you love. You know who else needs to show consideration for the man you love? You do. No more parking him in hotel rooms to protect the feelings of the biggitiest bigots in your family. Fuck the biggitiest bigots in your family. Spend Christmas with your partner. Hi, Dan. I am a 42-year-old female in a long-term relationship for the first time probably in my life uh, for about a year. I'm Polly. He is new to it. He said he understood and is accepting of it. But the sex between the two of us has been less than spectacular. Um, I have a higher libido than he does. He would like to have sex maybe once every few weeks. I would prefer to have it once every few days. 
Um, other than that, the relationship has been wonderful, but I feel like I'm harassing him because I want to have sex. This weekend, I proposed to him that I would like to uh, explore having a relationship outside of ours, mainly to be able to have sex again without it putting so much pressure on him. His response is he's not sure how he really feel about that, but he knows for sure that if I were to have sex with somebody else, he would never go down on me again. My frustration is that that is the only way I can orgasm. So I am now stuck between having very limited sex with the love of my life without the possibility of having an orgasm with him, or I could have orgasms as often as I want, theoretically, if I were to go outside and have sex with another person. Any advice? So to stop you from being who you are and who you told him you were when you first got together, he's essentially taken your orgasms hostage. He is threatening to kill your orgasms, at least the orgasms you have with him, if you do what he should have known you were likely to do, or at least have known you would want to do in the future, which is have more than one, at least sex partner, if not relationship, more than one relationship, but more than one person, that's Polly. And he got into a relationship with someone who is Polly. And this is his reaction to you a year into it, reminding him that he entered into a relationship with someone who is Polly. He moved to threatened to extinguish your orgasms with him. He took your orgasms hostage. He's pointing a gun at the head of all of your future orgasms with him, which will not be that numerous because if a year into this brand new love of the life relationship with you, he's only interested in having sex once every three weeks or so. Yeah, that's going to be once every six weeks in another couple of years and once every 12 weeks, a couple of years after that. And then once a year, maybe a few years after that. Why, again, do you describe this person as the love of your life? Someone who'd have this kind of selfish, obnoxious tantrum when you told him that you are who you said you were when you first met? Why are you in love with this person? He sounds shitty. Maybe he's got some other redeeming qualities. Maybe there's other aspects of his character and his person that you enjoy very much. But it seems to me that this move on his part is disqualifying. You should dump him. If you can't bring yourself to dump him because those other qualities are so quality that you don't want to move out on him yet or dump him yet, call his fucking bluff. Be the person that you told him you are and tell him you're going to date this other person and have sex with this other person. And then if he goes through with it, then if he'll never go down on you again, if he has that tantrum, if he presses that button or refuses to press that button with his tongue anymore ever, then dump him. And you knew I would say this and that's why you called. So you have my permission to dump the fucker who needs dumping, DTMFA. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 25-year-old straight guy from Central Canada. I have been single for most of my adult life, partly by choice, partly because I did a very difficult um, university degree and I sort of buried my head in my work for a while. Now I have had started to have some, do some casual dating and have some casual sex, uh, which I enjoy, but I have a problem where whenever... I can tell that there's going to be intimacy or there's going to be something intimate going on or sex is going to happen. I start shaking, like 
involuntarily shaking and shivering. And uh, it is something that I, like, the girl wouldn't notice if I was just talking to them. But if I were to, if we were to start making out or if I were to start kissing them or something, they would notice. And so, obviously, it's really embarrassing. I try to, like, get past it. Eventually, I can get past it, but then I'm pretty much completely unable to uh, have an erection after that happens. So, uh, yeah, I uh, I don't have this kind of anxiety in any other part of my life. I have, like, I'm very social, and I have a job that requires me to be on stage in front of a lot of people doing public speaking and stuff, and I don't have any problem with that. In fact, I enjoy that. But uh, this anxiety or whatever it is, this involuntary shivering happens whenever I try to get down. So uh, if you've heard of this before, if you uh, have any advice, I'd love to hear it. In all honesty, this is a new one. I have not received this question before. I'm going to wing it, but I do think that you need to discuss this with a therapist or a sex therapist or a counselor, maybe a cognitive behavioral therapist, because you obviously have some anxiety disorder or breaking point or kink or wrinkle in your psyche that is screwing sex up for you. And I don't think that we can unpack that here. I do have some, I think, maybe perhaps useful approaches, things you might try, not in place of seeking counseling. I think you can do this concurrently with going out there, finding yourself a counselor, discussing your anxiety issues around sex when sex is imminent. The first thing to do is disclose that this is likely to happen. If you are with someone and you're dating someone, date first, don't jump into bed, roll it out. Tell them that you have this weird quirk that you get so nervous and so keyed up and so anxious when sex is imminent that you have this kind of shaky spell and you're working on it and you're working through it, but it kind of derails sex at first and then see what happens. If it happens, don't stop. You say that after you have an episode like this, you have a difficult time or it's impossible for you to achieve an erection. Disclose that as well. Say that the first few times that you guys are intimate, it's probably going to be manual. It's probably going to be you going down on her. It's probably going to be mutual masturbation. Take all the pressure and all of her expectations off your dick. So if your dick doesn't show up, she can't complain. And she won't complain because she wasn't expecting your dick to show up. If your dick shows up, you get a boner. Yahtzee, there's an extra guest at the party. But it wasn't an expected guest, but a welcome one. The trick is to really make yourself vulnerable to this person who is interested in you and will then be invested in you emotionally, invested in you sexually, and wanting to figure out if they can help you through this and help make it work because they want it to work with you. The way you describe your dating history, it doesn't sound like you've ever gotten past this with anyone, that you've ever reached this point with anyone more than once, that you probably have had this happen and then been too embarrassed to see this person again, or you didn't tell this person about it in advance, so they didn't understand what was going on with you, with the shaking or the inability to achieve an erection, and maybe they thought there was something wrong with them or you weren't attracted to them, and they were embarrassed and humiliated because they didn't know what was going on because you didn't tell them. So... Err on the side of disclosure and see if that doesn't help with the anxiety. If you tell them that you have this anxiety issue that can derail sex, who knows? Maybe you will then feel less anxious in that moment because if it shows up and it derails not sex because you can have mutual masturbation, you can have oral sex even if you don't have an erection. If you have that episode, it's not going to blindside that person. They will know what it is and they will roll with it with you. My other recommendation is 
as ever, pot. Or maybe Xanax. If you go see a therapist and you get a prescription for an anti-anxiety medication like Xanax, try Xanax. You can treat anxiety or you can try pot. Now, pot makes some people paranoid and anxious, but there are all sorts of different kinds of pot available, including some kinds and strains that are formulated just so that they take the edge off and they mellow you out. And that might help as well. But circling back to my initial advice, you need a therapist. You need a counselor. You need someone who can work with you on these specific issues around your anxiety about sex and help you unpack what's informing this, what's creating this problem for you, if indeed there's anything specific that is, and also work with you on how to breathe in the moment, how to power through the moment, how to communicate with your partner about these incidents in a way that makes your partner feel like they're in this with you and that they're on your side and you're going to work through this together. And if your partner is taking that kind of attitude because you have made yourself vulnerable, because you've disclosed, I promise you, you will feel less anxious with that person, that future partner to whom you've disclosed these things instead of just hoping it doesn't happen again than you have with all of your previous partners in the past. Science. I love science. I love science so much that every once in a while I like to take a break from your calls and talk to scientists and researchers about the results of their latest published studies. Joining us for this What You Got, Dr. Lori Brodo, not her first time to the Savage Lovecast Rodeo, psychologist and sex researcher at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey, Dr. Brodo, how are you? I'm good, Dan. How are you doing? Good. Great to have you back. You've got some new stuff for us. What do you got? Tell us about it. So this is a new paper in which we review a lot of the scientific evidence looking at what is asexuality. Um, asexuality being typically defined as the, an individual who lacks sexual attraction. And over the years, there have been different hypotheses, speculations about what might this be. Are these celibate individuals? Are these individuals with a history of trauma? Um, do they have a psychiatric disorder? Is this a sexual dysfunction? And what we do in this paper is we review all of the scientific evidence that has looked at each of these questions separately. Um, and at the end, we conclude that it's none of these, none of these uh, factors, that it's likely uh, a unique sexual orientation. Hmm. Or a sexual disorientation? <laughs> I, no, not, not, I'm just joking. Not to say that people who are asexual are disoriented <laughs> in any way. But they're, you know, if you're asexual, some people would argue that you're not no interest in sex, no attraction to anyone. You're not really oriented toward anything. But that's not true because we've had asexuals uh, on the show who've spoken about having romantic inclinations, a desire for a relationship oriented toward someone, some kind of uh, long-term attachment, just no interest in sex. That's exactly right. And we know that, that quite a number of people who identify as asexual or aces um, many of them continue to have romantic attractions. They want to be in relationships. They want many of the non-sexual parts of, uh, of a partnership that people who identify as, as sexual do. So you're, you're absolutely right that one can still have romantic attractions even if one lacks sexual attractions. And why did you do this research and why is it important? Um, well, it's a really good question. So I, I started doing research in asexuality about a decade ago, and it was after 
um, Tony Bogart published um, a large study using some national prevalence data from Britain in which he found that about 1% of the 18,000 respondents checked off the item that said, I'm not attracted to anyone. And being a clinician who really um, focuses on low sexual desire or lack of sexual desire, I joined the chorus of skeptics who said, well, how is asexuality any different from just an extreme case of low sexual desire? Mm -hmm. So that question really launched a series of studies um, that, that really led me to, to change my original beliefs about what asexuality is. I, I no longer believe that asexuality is uh, kind of a manifestation of a sexual dysfunction. That's not to say that some asexuals don't have difficulties with sexual response, but asexuality is not a type of sexual dysfunction. You do hear, though, and I think this is a problem for, and I'll get yelled at for even raising the specter of these people, but just as with bisexuality, where some people identify as bi who are gay or lesbian, and then people will point to those gays or lesbians and say, no one's really bi because that person wasn't bi when they said they were bi, right? And a lot of, right. a lot of gays and lesbians engage in this because they maybe have identified as bi when they weren't and they project their own dishonesty onto people who are bi-identified who are bi who are not being dishonest. And that's a very shitty thing to do to bisexuals and bisexuals are rightly very angered by it. I have heard over the years from people who describe the time in their life when they identified as asexual as a kind of retreat from sexuality. They were afraid of their sexuality and it was a comforting place to go because then they weren't asked questions then they didn't have to have a sexuality because they weren't ready to right. confront the sexuality that they actually have. Can we acknowledge the existence of those people in the same way we can acknowledge the existence of gay people who identified as bi who weren't bi, and that causes problems for other bisexuals or for people who are actually bi, that there are some people who will, for a time, take shelter under the asexual umbrella, who then later emerge into their sexuality, and that people will then point to those former asexuals as proof that no one's really asexual. And that's bullshit in the same way that pointing to people who identified as bi when they were gay as proof that no one's bi is also bullshit. Yeah. You know, it's such a great point. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have anywhere near the amount of science on asexuals that we do among the other the other sexual orientation groups. So, you know, we've got long longitudinal, long-term data that follows people of different sexual orientations and follows them two years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later. And with those data, we can, we can conclude that, you know, a proportion of, of people kind of hop around to different groups depending on a number of different factors, sociocultural factors, relationship factors, stress factors. We simply don't have those data for asexuals to know. Um, what we do have, though, is when, uh, and, and a number of, of researchers, myself included, have, have done these kind of in-depth interviews, when we ask people who identify as asexual um, if they ever remember a time in their life where maybe they did have attractions, you know, there was a, there was a particular person they were very interested in or their mood was different. By and large, most of them will say, no, I, I've always felt this kind of lack of attraction. Now, I, I didn't say all of them. I said mm -hmm. the majority. And, it, and, and in fact, what um, researchers are discovering now is that asexuality is probably a heterogeneous group. Um, we know that uh, with the existence of demisexuality, so a demisexual is someone who kind of identifies as asexual, is not attracted to anyone for 
the majority of their life until they develop a very deep, strong emotional bond with someone. And only in that context do they develop sexual attraction. Mm -hmm. So there's these kinds of um, experiences that, you know, that, that call into question the the universality of, of lack of sexual attraction and asexual is probably much more diverse than that. So why do you think it's important to raise awareness about asexuality, its existence, its legitimacy? I have a theory about why it's important that's a little self-serving, but why do you as a researcher think it's important to raise awareness about this and to study it? Yeah, so, I mean, I've got, a, there's a number of reasons. I'll, as a clinician, first and foremost, who um, helps people who want to improve their level of sexual desire, who are distressed by their lack of desire, I think it's really important to distinguish um, a reality from those, you know, genuine clinical cases of, of men and women who, who lack desire so that we're not inadvertently treating someone for something that, that, doesn't, that they don't want to have treated. Um, I think as a researcher as well, you know, this really calls into question many of our um, uh, sociocultural and romantic even beliefs about uh, how universal sexual attraction is. I think many of us just have that belief, you know, to have sexual attraction is what makes us uniquely human and differentiates us from, you know, from, from non-human animals. And so the fact that we're finding that romantic attraction can be separate and disconnected from sexual attraction um, is really shaking up many of our, of our theories uh, of development of attractions in general. Um, you know, and then, of course, there's all the more kind of sociological, political reasons in terms of um, the fact that many asexuals will report being stigmatized and discriminated against. And there have been many cases where asexuals have tried to align with pride groups at different university campuses um, and have been, you know, told, go away. You're, you're not one of, you don't, you're not one of us. You don't belong here. And so this kind of adds to their level of feeling stigmatized. And so as we gain more scientific evidence and more of an understanding, and especially if it is the case that um, we conclude that it is a sexual orientation, I think some of those, um, those judgmental and stereotypic attitudes will change. I completely agree. You know what? I think it's important to raise awareness about asexuality. The number one reason asexuality comes up in my column, the question I get about it and have gotten about it in the past is when someone doesn't know themselves to be asexual, has no self-conception, ability to self-conceive as asexual. And so they enter into romantic relationships with someone who is sexual and everybody's made miserable by this because the asexual person who does mm -hmm. not know anything about asexuality can conceive of themselves as an asexual thinks they're broken or there's something wrong with them or they're having sex that they're not enjoying because sex isn't anything that they want or are interested in. The other person who's sexual feels like they're doing something wrong, like they're a monster. And the more general awareness there is out there in the culture about asexuality as a thing, the less likely these discordant relationships are to be created to, to, to get off the ground at all and the less misery that then will be generated in the world by the, the formation of these, these relationships that are really never going to work, not because the asexual person did anything wrong, but because there wasn't this ability to, to self-conceive, this awareness of who they really were. And to discover that long into a marriage can be disruptive and problematic for all involved. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Dan. And I, and I would just put out there that, you know, among the couples that I've seen that, you know, originally started along the pathway of labeling this as low desire and then discovering that, 
you know, this actually fits better with asexuality, that, um, that, that some of those couples, I would even argue many of those couples with, you know, a bit of guidance, they can figure out a way to make their relationship work in, in spite of the asexuality, sexuality pairing. So maybe it is that the sexual partner finds other outlets for their sexuality. Um, in some cases, the asexual partner will um, agree to sex and want to engage in sex, not for sexual reasons, but for other reasons. And it works for some couples if done consensually and with a lot of thought and communication. So um, this is just to say that the discovery even well into a relationship that one is asexual doesn't mean doom for, for that relationship. So where can people find your study who want to read it for themselves? So it's free online. Um, you can find it on my website, which is grottolab.com. Just click on the link that says studies, and it's the first publication that appears. Um, and you can also just do a general Google search. You can Google search asexuality and grotto, and uh, the PDF of the paper will appear. Thank you very much, Dr. Lori Brodo, psychologist, sex researcher at the UBC in Vancouver and frequent and valued guest here on the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for chatting with us again. Thanks so much, Dan. Take care. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 37-year-old, straight, divorced white male from uh, Chicagoland area. I've been divorced going on five years now. My ex-wife left me for a woman, which is 21st century. It happens. I understand that. The thing is... She, when she left, she told me that she was gay, had always been gay, and had forced herself to be straight, to be with me, and that came as a complete shock to me and seemed completely disingenuous. This is a woman who would initiate sex a lot. Uh, we had a great and active sex life for years. <sighs> Does that happen? I, I don't know. Can a, a, a gay woman force herself to be straight and seem to enjoy it for years and years, for 13 years? You know, part of me thinks she left for money because her new significant other is very, very, very wealthy, and uh, I'm not. I, I don't know. Uh, the only thing we ever thought about during our 13 years together was money. Just like your input. If you were to really do a deep dive, expression of the day, deep dive, deep dive through the archives of this program, you will find plenty of calls from lesbian-identified women, from lesbians, who have fucked men, will fuck men, occasionally fuck men, sometimes fuck men with their girlfriends or their wives. There are some lesbians out there who like dick. They just like pussy lots more, and it is within the realm of the possible that you were with someone for 13 years who was a lesbian, but liked Dick and liked you and made do with your Dick and enjoyed sex and enjoyed sex with you to the extent that it was possible, but couldn't, you know, form that emotional connection with you. Couldn't really love you the way she loves her new partner. That is possible. It's also possible that your wife, your ex-wife is pretending to be a lesbian because she likes her new partner's money. That's also possible. People have been gay for pay, and I suppose somebody could be les for cash. We have to find the other rhyme. That is also within the realm of the possible. Stop tormenting yourself, though, with these thought experiments because there's no answer here that is going to satisfy you. 
because we can't have that answer. We can't get that answer. We can't pry your wife's head open and dig around in the gray matter and determine whether she is indeed truly a lesbian or if she was lying to you when she seemed to be enjoying sex with you all those years. I had sex with girls back in the day, long time ago when I was a teenager. I seemed to enjoy it. If you asked those girls at that moment whether I was enjoying myself, they would tell you, yes, that I did seem to enjoy what was happening to me in those moments. They didn't know what was going on between my ears at those moments. They didn't know that I was pretending they were Leif Garrett or Andy Gibb, that really dating myself with those two there. But that's who it was, Leif Garrett, Andy Gibb. They couldn't know that. So I was gay as a goose and I was balls deep in a girl at those moments. It's possible that your ex-wife, every single time you were balls deep in her, was still as lesbian as a lemur or whatever, I guess. Possible. Also possible she's lying to her new girlfriend or wife. Also possible that she's bisexual. And there are a lot of bi women out there who round themselves up to lesbian. A lot of lesbian-identified bi women in the world, just as there are some gay-identified bi guys in the world. It is a thing. And many, many more straight-identified by people in the world. I would advise you, your marriage is over, I would advise you to stop obsessing about your ex-wife. You're 37 years old. I can tell you now as a 52-year-old, you are young. Stop obsessing about your marriage, which is now over, and get on with your life. Meet somebody who wants your dick as much as your ex-wife did or seemed to back in the day. And stop thinking about her and stop thinking about why she's with, who she's with now. It is irrelevant to you. Go find someone that you can be with now. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from London. My God, the re-election. My God. I, I think I speak for the whole of the UK, if not the whole of Europe, when I say this is beyond terrifying. And I can't express the sorrow I feel for the women in the States who have been so blatantly told that it's okay for someone who assaults women to be elected to the highest office and for the progress that has been made over the last eight years that may now be sent backwards. I really, I'm just calling to express my great sorrow on your behalf and my sincere regret for you. Good luck to you all and know that your cousins across the pond are filled with compassion for you at this terrible dark time. Dan, this is in response to the girl in 524 who had a bad experience with a dom she met on Tinder. First of all, you should never meet somebody and agree to a sexual experience without having negotiated, talked, and met the guy first. Get thee to a munch, sister. Go out in the community and meet people. There are some very good, loving, caring doms out there that will treat you the way you want to be treated. The submissive controls the scene. It, the dom should be working toward her pleasure, period, and discussion. Hi, Dan. This is a message uh, for episode 524, the girl who's broken up with after six years. Um, I had a very similar situation with a guy for five years. We were planning on getting married and moving in together, and he broke up with me seemingly out of the blue. And by that, I mean every single person who knew us was shocked that he had done it. 
But as it turns out, it was something you've been thinking about for a long time. You can love someone and not really know that they're having concerns. I guarantee your boyfriend did not break up with you because of one fight. As far as trying to get back with him, girl, don't. This is time to maintain your dignity. Hold on to that dignity. Don't chase after him because the harder you try to catch him, the more he's going to try to get away from you. If it's meant to be, he'll come back. But for now, hold on to that dignity. Before we let you go, we want to remind you we're recording a couple of live shows or staging a couple of live tapings of the Savage Love cast in Seattle and Portland in early December. Savage Love Live Christmas Special will be at Portland's Revolution Hall on December 2nd. We will have guests. We will have music. We will have fun. You can find the tickets at portlandmercury.com slash special. And in Seattle at the Neptune Theater on December 4th, the same show. Tickets are available for the Seattle show at thestranger.com slash special. We are calling it our Christmas Spectacular, and I promise you it will be spectacular. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, please give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Lori Brodo on Twitter at Dr. Lori Brodo. Read my sex advice column, Savage Love, every week in Boulder Weekly and other alternative weekly newspapers all across the country and the world. The Savage Love cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with one installment of the Savage Love cast. It is life, love, sex, and joy. Enjoy.